My name is Tim, and uh, I'm the pastor at uh, North Attleboro Waters Church. We are two campuses becoming four campuses this Sunday. So, yeah, I feel like I want to vomit 24 hours a day. It's, <laughs> it's a really wonderful feeling. Um, that's how you, you know, that's how you stay thin in the ministry is you take tons and tons of chances and risks that make you not eat and sweat the details and all that kind of stuff. But I have an amazing team of people, an amazing staff of people who do most of the work, literally. Um, I'm blessed at this point in my life to kind of just be able to do very, very few things, and that is uh, constantly, you know, cultivate the culture of our church, lead the leaders, and preach the gospel. And I just love the fact that I can do that. I love the fact that that's where we are as a church. It's just uh, it's, it's wonderful to be at that point as church, as, as a pastor, where you get to do what you want to do, not what you have to do. And uh, I'm a big fan of delegation, which is just find somebody and give it to them. And uh, that's also because I'm lazy and I don't like to do a lot of work. So I find people who can do it for me. And then I just kind of coach them and you know, praise them up and get them going, and it's just fun. So, well, we're going to talk about um, a passage of scripture that's very near and dear to my heart. That's actually the basis for my talk. I mean, I'm a preacher, so I can't get anything from anywhere else. I got to get it from Jesus. I got to get it from the Bible. Uh, so it's Luke 15. If you want to go there, you can. I'm going to read the passages that I uh, just want to touch on, and the title of the talk is "Breaking Three Emotional Attachments for the Sake of God's Singular Agenda." What is God's singular agenda? God's singular agenda can be summed up in one word, people. Jesus loves people, and that's all he cares about. Like, that's it. Like, who was, he, who was he around when he lived on this earth? He was around people. And he was around people who were far from God. And that's something that in our church, we make that the priority. If you walk into our office area, you will see a large sign on the wall and it says one sentence, it's the theme of everything we do. It says, we are here for those who are not yet here. We drill that into everybody every single week. So every 3.10 uh, on Saturday, 3.10 p.m. on Saturday, we have a, like a gathering of our team, uh, everybody that's going to be serving on that weekend because we have a Saturday night service, two Sunday morning services. And so we just kind of like gather around right next to that sign and remind ourselves that that's what it's about. Jesus is about people. We got to be about people. The church has to be about people. And unfortunately, what happens in churches, and I know this experientially, and I know this um, emotionally for myself, is we start to easily make the church about things other than people. This is like the natural gravitational pull of the church. The gravitational pull of the church is it pulls you away. Life and just things and, and, and you know, the experience of the stresses of everything that you got to do pulls you away from what God cares about. And you, as leaders in your church, the job of your, of your leadership is to constantly reorient everybody that works with you around what's the main thing, right? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing for the church is, is people. So I, I always like to think that at these conferences, whenever you go to these conferences, I've been to almost, you name a church conference, I've been there. And everything that I have to say to you today is stolen from somebody else. So don't give me credit. <laughs> There's a lot of people that have sowed into my life, and I'm just passing it on. But um, when we come to these conferences, there is a temptation to think, what's the strategy? Give me the bullet point list of what you did that made you awesome or made your church large. 
And, uh, you know, we, we tend to think like that. And what that is, is that is a mental capacity at work. So just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And I'll, you know, magic formula, poof, there's the big church that I've been hoping for. God doesn't work like that. God does not work like that. I mean, I love Dino's talk because what did he talk about? It starts small. And you think about your family. It started with just you and your spouse <laughs> as two people. And maybe you have a big family, small family, whatever, but genealogically, you're going to have hundreds of people come from those two people over the, over the course of several uh, decades or centuries. And so everything that God does that I see in the scriptures is a heart issue. He's always, he's always talking to our heart. And, and the, master of the, pers- the master of talking to people's hearts is Jesus. I mean, he was always going straight to the heart in every situation, in every interaction that he had with people. Remember when the Pharisees bring the woman caught in the act of adultery before him, and they're like, hey, the law says, and what do you say? And they're trying to bait him because if he follows the law and stones her, then they can bring him to trial before Caesar or before uh, the Roman pure curator because he killed somebody or executed somebody against the law. Or if he lets her go, then he's broken the Mosaic law, so he's caught between like this logical decision like, they're just trying to get, make them, ha, get him to make a logical mistake. And what does he do? He, he cuts straight to the heart and he says, hey, he was without sin. Throw the first stone. And immediately now they have to look at their hearts, right? And this is what Jesus does again and again and again. He's talking to the heart. Because Jesus knows, I mean, he, he, is the, he is wisdom personified, right? When, when the Proverbs talk about seek wisdom, chase after it like you chase after silver, go after wisdom at all cost. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom of God, the power of God. Uh, that's in 1 Corinthians. And so here's what it says, ironically, in, in Proverbs 4.23, right in the middle of this long diatribe about how important it is to get wisdom. And we think about wisdom as an intellectual uh, acumen thing. You know, you, you, you attain knowledge and then you put that knowledge into practice. And right in the middle of that talk about wisdom, Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart, not your mind. Guard your heart for from it comes the wellsprings of life. And your life is a reflection of your heart. So too is your church a reflection of your heart. Um, are you... Uh, if you're a pastor, lead pastor, pastor's wife, uh, whatever you are, if you're a leader in that church, whatever you lead is going to be a reflection of what's in your heart. So that's the question you've got to ask. Is what, in, is what is in my heart what Jesus has in his heart? And what Jesus has in his heart is people. It's all about people. Do whatever it takes to bring people who are far from God back to God. And that's our number one thing. And so in Luke chapter 15, Jesus shares three stories, right? Now, Luke 15 is famous for one story, but there was three stories, two stories before the big story that we kind of ignore. We skip over. We go to the third story. The third story is, anybody know? Prodigal son, right? Father with two sons. But before that story, there's a woman who loses her coin. And before that story, there's a man who loses his sheep. And Jesus tells these stories in reaction or in response to another point in which people were coming at him and criticizing him. Remember, the, the, it says in the very first part of the chapter, uh, verses 1 to 3, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. Tax collectors and sinners, people far from God, were coming to see Jesus. And then it says this, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And he tells three successive stories 
to get their hearts aligned with his, get their hearts aligned with God's heart for people. And uh, this is why you've got to take note of who your critics are. <laughs> like, who are, who's criticizing you as a church leader? And I sometimes have to ask this of myself. Are my critics the same kind of critics that Jesus got? Because I watched Jesus, and the people that criticized Jesus were never un, non, um, unbelievers. It was never people who were non-religious. It was never people who were, you know, going to synagogue, uh, 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 going to the pubs and going to the bars and partying all the time. It was the people who were closest. It was the insider crowd, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the religious leaders. And you know what? One of the best times in my life as a pastor, one of the one of the moments that changed everything for me was when we started to make a, a, a concerted effort as a church to go after the lost. And, and you can make that decision as a church or not, but we did. For the first seven years of our life, we did not. Now, ever since 2009, we've made it the concerted point of our church to go after people far from God. And when you start doing that, it's going to be the insiders who come after you. It's just the fact. This is what Jesus experienced right here. The scribes, the Pharisees, the people who were inside came after him. They didn't like him because he was going after the people who were not inside. And so he tells this story, uh, these three stories, to orient their hearts around what is God's heart after. And when I was going through that time, there was a couple that came to, our, came to meet with me and my wife, and, um, uh, and we were uh, seeing people leave left, right, and center. Like when we made a decision in 2009 to say we're not going to be here for people who love Jesus, for people who are already saved, we're going to be here for people who do not know Jesus. It was amazing how many letters I got, how many emails I got, how many pastor, my wife and I would like to come and talk to you. And we knew like me and my wife at some point, we just knew like they're going to leave the church and they want to come and just kind of like vomit on us emotionally and then leave the church nasty and it's going to be ugly and we're going to be hurt. And after a while, we just said, no more meetings, just go. If you want to leave, just go. And uh, we lost like about 30% of our, the size of our church at that time. Uh, just, they just walked out, some of our best friends. In fact, one of our best friends, we went to their kids' birthday parties together. We went to, we would have holidays with them. We were, we were tight with these people. And I'll never forget when they left, we were like, we're going to meet with these people because we've got we to salvage this relationship. We've got to try to get these people to stay. And they came and met with us, and I'll never forget what they said. And they said, we are uncomfortable with our kids being in the same room with those kids. And I was just like, there's the door. Just go. Like, serious. That's it. Hands washed. I'm done with that. If you cannot love people who Jesus loves, you're not going to fit in with our church. And, and you've got to constantly, as, as leaders, it's our job to make sure that our hearts are aligned with God's heart in that regard. Nobody's going to do this for us. You can come to relate and you can get it like charged up for you like for a couple more weeks, but you've got to intentionally start to make sure that you're breaking these emotional attachments that start to lock onto your heart so that you constantly keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is people far from God, right? right. And so there are three, three things. Three things, three stories, three emotional connections that we have got to break in order to reach lost people. The first one comes from the first story. And the first story is that Jesus shares. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing 
And I love the, the fullness of emotional words in Luke chapter 15. It's just filled with emotion, 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 emotion. Remember, it ends with a celebration. The father saying to the old son, we had to rejoice and be glad. All emotional words, right? We had to rejoice over this lost son coming back. And so he says, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy, again, emotional word, joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons, righteous persons, who need no repentance. Just notice, by the way, here, that the shepherd calls together his friends and throws a party for his lost sheep that was found. Pastors and leaders of your churches, what do you celebrate? What do you call people up and say, you won't believe it, this is what happened this week? You know, what do you get excited about? Because whatever you celebrate, this is an Andy Stanley-ism, Andy Stanley-ism. <laughs> whatever you celebrate gets repeated. Whatever you, whatever you rejoice over, and this is in every area of your church, if you rejoice over, um, and I was, I was raised Pentecostal, okay, so I, I, this is where I come, this was, this was my stream. If you rejoice over the fact that you had three tongues and three interpretations in one service, then that's going to be repeated in your services. Nothing against that. I'm just saying, what is God's singular agenda about this, this world right now? People need Jesus. We are in New England. It is game on for the gospel changing unsaved people's lives. Amen? Somebody, I mean, that's what this is about. I mean, if you love long 50-minute worship services, then your church is going to have long 50-minute worship services. If you love, you know, community and everybody knowing everybody and everybody being in everybody's business, and you've got a very small church, about 100 people, about 100 people can know everybody and be comfortable with everybody, and it's just going to be because you celebrated that. And in my church, I don't want to know everybody. I don't want to know that many people, honestly. I don't want to know that many people that well because how many know you can get to know somebody and before you know it, you've known too much about them and now you're, you're upset that you kind of got to know them a little bit too much. Not everybody is your kind of person. Hey, Jesus did this too, by the way. Mark chapter 3 says he drew the ones that he wanted to himself. The 12 that he brought in, it says in the text, he wanted those guys. So not everybody was like a real close kind of person for Jesus. The same is true for us, right? but he wanted his people to be about what God's heart was. So what do you, call, what do you celebrate? What do you, what do you rally people together? When David asked me to do this talk, uh, he said, find out what the, uh, tell us what the secret sauce is of your church. And I'm like, secret sauce? I have no idea. I really don't know how to do this. So I took this little card and I handed it out to our staff. And the question was simple. And it was, tell us why you think our church is growing and why you think God is blessing Waters Church. And I was like, I'm going to leave it in their hands. Because to be honest with you, I wasn't sure how to answer that question myself. I mean, I knew like what was in my heart, but I don't always think like, okay, put it on a paper and, and that's what it is. So anyway, every single one came back. Like um, this, this person says, every, mo every message is focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, loving people to know him. Um, uh, this person says, it's our church's commitment to being culturally relevant and accepting of all people from all backgrounds while simultaneously standing firm and unashamed on the biblical truth. Um, it says, that one's not so great, but here's <laughs> another my, Making first timers, that one was about my beard and how great it looks. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this one says, making first timers feel welcomed. That's what makes our church uh, blessed. Uh, I think 
something our, our church does well here says uh, cast vision to church staff and volunteers about creating an environment in which lost people can come to know Jesus. We never strive, I love this one, we never strive to create a comfy place for Christians, but a comfy place for people far from God. I got that and I was like, yay. <laughs> uh, we are willing to go to extremes and do anything short of sin to reach lost people for, uh, for Jesus Christ without compromising the gospel. Uh, we focus on the one in everything we do. We don't think of things that would make us look cooler or promote our own agenda, but we focus on that first-time visitor and how this would affect their life. Um, uh, just on and on and on. It's like every single one almost, like 90% of them were just, we are all about that person far from God. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. Like, yes, we are surrounded uh, in our hearts around this singular agenda. So anyway, Jesus shares the first thing, the first emotional attachment that we can fall into that will take us away from reaching people for Christ. The first emotional attachment is emotional attachment to your stuff. Emotional attachment to things. I am a hoarder. My wife, God gave me a wife that throws away my morning coffee before I'm done with it. Every single morning, I put it down because I like it medium. I like it lukewarm. I'm, 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 I'm weird about my coffee. I like it lukewarm. I just want to down it real quick before I get out. So I'll put it on the, co on the table. I'll take a sip. I'll go to take my shower. I'll come back. It's gone. She's thrown so many things away on me. And it's like she's the anti-me with stuff. And she's been a blessing because she keeps our loads light. And the thing about the church is you got to learn how to let go of stuff all the time. And sometimes we're guilty of this as leaders and church pastor, uh, and pastors is we will tell people not to be tied to their stuff in their personal lives, but then we won't do that as pastors in our church leadership. We'll hold on to things that we shouldn't hold on to. And so I decided to like, just write down some things that were things that we tend to think are not things. We actually think that they're actually more than things, and they're not. They're actually just things. So I just thought I'd list them for you. Um, number one, worship style is a thing. Worship style is a thing. It is not... From Sinai, whatever your worship style is, I guarantee you someone fought someone else long before you got there to make that worship style that worship style. Like remember when the drums came into the church in like the 1980s and everybody was like freaking out about that? But before it was the drums, it was the piano. Before it was the piano, it was the harpsichord. You know, before it was the piano, it was the harp. Before it was the harp, it was chanting in caves by monks. I mean, we have been fighting that battle for, for generations. Worship styles is a thing. And right now, we are at cool church style. What you saw in there is what we have at our church. It's called cool church. Anybody can do it. You just have to pay a lot of money, and you have to keep paying a lot of money. But um, it's just cool church, and it's going to go away at some point. And it's like, don't hold on to it. Let's not, be, let's not do to the next generation what the previous generation did to us with worship styles. Let's let it go. If your worship style, if the, if, the, if the number of songs you sing, if the songs that you sing are too insidery and not relevant to people far from God, stop singing those songs. I'm always meeting with our worship director saying, man, that was like, that was like a make out with Jesus song. How many know the make out with Je oh, Jesus make out music? Come on, guys. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, you ladies are not going to like this part of this talk, but it's true. There is Jesus make out music. It is so ridiculous. Like, if you just replace the word Jesus with honey, it could be on a pop radio station, and it could be like a number one song. 
It's like, that's not who Jesus is. He is not our, he is not our, I know he's our lover. I know he's our husband. And I know all that stuff that freaks us dudes out all the time. I understand that. But he is Lord and Savior. He is rescuer. He's King of Kings. He is, he is the true man, the second Adam. He is the victor and conqueror, the author and finisher of our faith. So we can't let worship style become something that we hoard because we like it. It's a thing. Because this is what Jesus says about the sheep. The sheep is a thing. And the guy was so excited about his thing. He threw a party for his thing. And then he says, but listen, your father in heaven throws a greater party in heaven over one person who comes to know me. So don't let your things be more important than the people far from God in your church or in your community. Uh, number two, a title is a thing. Like, are you obsessed about reverend and pastor and people calling you that? Are you obsessed about, like, what's on your door? Or, or, or you know, uh, what, what people call you in the community or whatever like that. I, I hate reverend. I hate I get freaked out. Like, I had a grandfather who was a pastor. He's reverend. He's the only reverend I want in my life. Like, I'm not reverend. You know, I'll mess with people and tell, you know, people who are, like, serious Christians to call me reverend just to mess with them. But... I don't care about titles. I don't care if you call me Tim. I don't care what you call me. I, I want the lost to come to know Jesus. Um, and uh, one of the things that I do is I, I let a lot of guys preach for me. And uh, we just moved into a 100,000 square foot building last fall. We just celebrated one year in that new building. And this year, I counted it up, was the least I've preached in the history of our church per Sunday. And you know why? Because preaching is a thing. I don't need to hold on to the preaching. I don't need to be in that pulpit every single week. And I do get people coming up to me saying, oh, you're not preaching today. Oh, I wish it was you. I'm like, no, man, this is awesome. We got a young guy. He's going to preach. And you got to celebrate that. And you got to celebrate, you know, new people coming in and doing great things in your church. But it's just a thing. So a title is a thing. Order of, a, order of service is a thing, like a liturgy. Whatever your liturgy is, like, and, and even Cool Church has a liturgy. We saw it there this morning, right? It's two songs, and somebody comes out and greets people, and then they sing another song, and then you take an offering, and then there's a bumper video, and then the preacher, and then there's a soft spiritual music at the end of the preaching, and then there's like a hand-raised moment, and everybody... We could write that down, and everybody could time it in our services. So it's not just the Episcopalians and Presbyterians with liturgy, right? Everybody has a liturgy, but liturgy is a what? Thing. If you need to change it, change it. Change it so that people far from God feel comfortable in your church. Don't let the liturgy be something that has to speak to your spirit. You're saved. You've got all eternity to let God speak to your spirit and minister to your spirit. All right? You've got to do, you're on, we are game on on the weekend at our church. It is not about you. The moment you sign up to volunteer at our church, we tell you, it's game on. Don't come to church for you anymore. You come to church for them. And a lot of people don't like that. They don't, they don't understand that. But we just know this is what God's singular agenda is here, especially in New England. This is not the Bible Belt. This is not Dallas. This, this is not Atlanta, Georgia, where you could spit and have 5,000 people in two weeks. <laughs> this is New England, where we are the number one unchurched area of this country. This is not something we should be bragging about, but this is something that we should be setting Everything else aside to turn that tide around, and I believe it's happening, by the way, right now in New England. I think great things are happening in this area. But anyway, order of a service is a thing. A denomination affiliation is a thing. We had to walk away from our denomination 
And my grandfather was one of the, like, um, second in command, you know. And my mother, you know, when I told her that we were walking away, she's like, oh, how could you, you know. It's like, and it was an Italian denomination, so it was like, you're leaving the family, you know. <laughs> you know? Never walk away from the family. That's what it's like. But we had to walk away. Why? Because they were stuck. They were stuck worshiping things. And we just had to get away because we wanted to reach the lost. Another thing. One more thing, and I got a story about this. Buildings are things. Buildings are things. And we put a lot of time and a lot of effort into building big buildings. But it's just a thing. Someday, this building will be gone. It will either be no longer a church or Jesus is coming and fire is going to cover the world and everything's going to be wiped out anyway. Don't love your building more than you love people far from God. If your building doesn't help you reach people far from God, get rid of the building. If you, are, if you are at capacity and you can't, you can't reach people anymore uh, with that size building, you've got to do everything in your power to find and pay for a bigger building. So here's what happened to us. This is a really cool story. Uh, Ten years ago, we moved into our first like, permanent location. We were Actually, no, it was our second permanent location. So we were portable, and then we moved like five times in our first four years as we grew. And I remember going by this building and thinking, man, if we just had that building, it would be awesome. That would be perfect for us forever. Like, awesome. 20,000 square feet. Uh, we could put like a 500-seat sanctuary, um, you know, room for growth, room for expandability. And uh, we raised money, and we put $250,000 into this building. We were at that time with like 250 people or so, like around, around that size. And we put $250,000 into this building. And we were like two weeks away from the finishing of construction in that building. And I met with uh, one of the co-tenants, because we were, we were a subtenant to CVS, the pharmacy, who was, a, who was the tenant of the owner of the building. And I met with the co-tenant, which was a gym. And he said, hey, you know about the deal between CVS and the owner, right? And I said, no. And he said, uh-oh. And I'm like, oh, crap, what? <laughs> he goes, there is a condition in their lease that if they want to, at any time, the owner of the building could kick out CVS and all the tenants and demolish the building and do whatever they want with it. And I'm like, you're telling me this now? We just put, we just put a quarter of a million dollars into this building. We were a small church, 250 people. I raised money on good faith to do this building. And now this building could be gone like two months into our move-in. So I, I call up the owner in desperation. I'm like, I have to meet with you. And the owner actually died. And the person who was running his estate was his longtime secretary. And the estate is in the hands of like 50 families, which is actually a good thing for us. But I went to her house and I met with her. I said, Sandy, you got you to gotta understand something. I'm a pastor of a church. We are Christians. We are not rich. Uh, we put a lot of money. We put everything we have into this building. If you guys tear this building down, we are screwed. Like, we are up a creek without a paddle. And I'll never forget, she said, ah, oh, Tim, don't worry about it. And this is, this is like money talking. Like, people with money don't understand people with not, not, no money. <laughs> and, and she said to me, she said, oh, Tim, don't worry. If we demolish the building, we'll find you another place to go. I'm like, that's not assurance. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. So anyway, I'm like on the way home from, from, on the way home from her house, and I'm thinking, I can't tell anybody this. I can't tell you what. And I kept that secret for 10 years. The only person I ever told was my wife. That's how you keep your job as a pastor, by the way. Sometimes you don't tell everybody everything. And uh, the, time, the, the moment that I shared that with our congregation was one month before we were moving into our current building. 
<laughs> and I told them that, and I said, you see, I don't tell you everything. They all laughed and everything, because you know, they were all in high spirits, because we were getting a new building. And that's when you can tell some stuff that you shouldn't have told them before. You know? <laughs> but anyway. So yeah, ha ha ha, right. Like, oh, OK. Oh, isn't that funny? He lied to us for 10 years. That's great. <laughs> when are we open in the new building? So anyway, um, what we got in that conversation, what I got in that conversation was an expiration date. And it was an unknown expiration date for the, for the building that I thought would have been good enough forever. It was like God just stamped, not permanent. And so I went into that building with a totally different vision. We got to get something permanent. We got to get something nobody can kick us out of. We got to get a bigger building. We got we to believe God for more. And God shaped my heart through that expiration date to believe him for something more. And so really cool story anyway, I had to do what I didn't want to do. For four years, we had a building campaign. For four stinking years. They say you do it for three years at Tops. We did it for four years. It was hideous. Raising money and talking about giving and having a big offering every single year and, and not having anything. Like, it's hard to raise money. It's, it's hard enough to raise money when you have, like, a plot of land that you've put a down payment on you want to build on. When you want to raise money for an enigma, like something in your brain, that's hard. And, and the Lord chiseled me, like, through all that process. And then we went through the, the, the big transition where people just walked out the door and we became a church for people that are far from God. And we went from one service to two services, to three services, to four services. And at the last, time, at the last year, we were at five services a weekend in that one building, 20,000 square feet that I thought we were going to stay in forever. And if I had kept that in my mind, we would never have grown further. So four years raising money, we were able to put a down, uh, we were able to purchase a, a piece of property that was on the market for $4 million. By the way, it's a piece of property that I walked into. It came up for sale um, a, about a year after we moved into our last building. So the building we put $250,000 into. I, it came up for sale, and I thought, let me just walk through it. I, we had just moved into the, the existing one. So I walked through it with the realtor. And I remember this. I went through the office area of that building. It was a jewelry manufacturing plant. And I put my head into one of the offices, and I looked out through this window. And it was one of the two times in my life where God literally spoke to me, one of two times. And he said, this is where I want the church. And I'm like, Lord, we just put $250,000 into that building over there. You know, this is, this is probably the burrito I had for lunch talking. This is not God. But it was just there. The seed was planted. The expiration notice. The expiration date was, was stamped on that building in my mind. We had to move on from that building. Long story short, we uh, signed the purchase and sale agreement for, two, for $4 million for that building. And, um, and this is, the, this is the, uh, uh, the value of keeping your mouth shut more often than you should. <laughs> but anyway, we had it appraised. And we never told the appraiser uh, how much we were contracted to buy the building for. If you ever buy a house, never tell the appraiser. If you can avoid telling the appraiser, don't, don't tell the appraiser, because here's what happened to us. He came back with an appraisal for less than the contracted price. We went back with his appraisal to the owner of the building. We said, this is what it's appraised for. We can't get lending for the full value that you want us to pay for. you got to drop the price. He's like, no, he hemmed and hot. He was like this old rich guy. And he goes, no, 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 it's going to be that. And we're like, no, no, the deal's off if we can't do it because we cannot raise another, two, another this amount of money to get into that building. So anyway, he finally relented, and we signed, and we purchased that building for $250,000 less than $4 million. 
that $250,000 that we put in that I was worried about, God the whole time was like, I got this, I got this, I'll give it back to you on the back end. And it's just, the point is not about building. The point is be ready to move on. Have a vision for a bigger church. Have a vision for a better building. Maybe not a bigger building, maybe a better building, a rehab building. What I love about this building, this is also a rehab building, and they've done a fantastic job with it. Like, your buildings need to change constantly as a church. My wife is the main decorator of our church, and she's always coming to me saying, that looks like crap, and that looks like crap, and that looks like, and she's throwing stuff out at church, too. She throws things out all the time. And, and she's always, like, saying we need to go to the next level with where we are. Don't hold on to anything. It's just a thing. And that's what Jesus says here in this passage. A sheep is just a thing, but the guy threw a party over his thing. Your Father in heaven throws parties over people. Keep the main thing, uh, the main thing. At our existing property, too, there's like a big plot of grass. It's this beautiful, massive lawn. It's got a flag right in the middle of it, and it sits right on 95. And I've already told my church, I said, don't fall in love with that piece of grass because that's going to be a 2,500-seat sanctuary someday. You know, we are going to have a bigger building than this. You've got to constantly tell people it's not about the building. It's not about the, what you like or what you want in your church. It's about people. And if what you like and what you want in your church is hindering people from coming to Jesus, get rid of it. Get rid of it because hell is real. Jesus saves people from an eternity in hell. And in, in the next life, you are not going to worry about what building you had and how, what your style of service was or what your liturgy was. You're going to be glad that you brought friends with you to heaven in the form of people. Anyway, attachment number two is the next story. Because he says, what woman has having 10 coins? She loses one. She sweeps the house. And, and the backstory behind this story is that the coin was like this headband deal that she would wear to her um, wedding. And it was like her dowry. But really, it speaks to the second attachment that we have in our hearts for, for, as church leaders, and that is the attachment of money. We, we get so attached to finances emotionally. And what I'm talking about is um, you, let the, you let the financial position of your church make you exceedingly happy or exceedingly miserable. And let me just tell you, after 15, 14 years of being a lead pastor, you're going to go through seasons where it makes you exceedingly happy and exceedingly miserable. And there's a heck of a lot more of miserable than happy. How many know what I'm talking about with money? You can't let that dictate what you do as a church. You can't let money call the shots. It can't be about money. Our God, I know it's a euphemism. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a passage, but it becomes a euphemism. It becomes an amen moment for pastors, but it's true. Our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And you got to be able to trust him to stretch out and put your money into reaching lost people. Put your money into reaching lost people. Um, I am guaranteed of this. Most pastors do not have to preach better. You know what they have to do? They have to reach better. They, most pastors preach great. And, and, and I know that pastors are all about the preaching. Oh, man, my pre if my preaching was better, more people would come. Not necessarily true. Not necessarily true. You know what you need to do? You need to reach better. You need to put money into advertising. You need to put money into billboards. You need to put money into whatever you can to just say to your community, hey, we're here for you. We are opening two campuses this weekend, two campuses in two, in two schools in two cities. One of those cities is Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And Woonsocket, Rhode Island needs Jesus like bad. It's, uh, it's, 
I, I used to live in that city, so I know. <laughs> it's like one of the most corrupt cities in Rhode Island, and that's saying something. Like most corrupt cities in Rhode Island, it's saying something. <laughs> but it's also one of the most Catholic cities in Rhode Island, and it's one of those like long-time traditional Catholic churches, church areas. So anyway, we get to school, and I get a call from um, a reporter from the news, uh, the newspaper in that city, and he wants to talk to me about the school, about the church. And I'm like, all right. This is my chance. I'm going to tell him what we're going to do for the city, how excited we are to bring the gospel, who we are as a church, I'm going to tell my story. And his questions were none of that. His questions were, did you talk to the superintendent of schools personally? Did, you did they have a vote on this? Did this go all the way up to city council? And like 16 questions in, I'm like, wait, 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 stop, stop. I, I'm getting the idea you don't want us to come to the city. And, um, and I said, the only thing that I'm willing to submit to you for a quote for your article is this. Waters Church is coming to your city to love people and bless the city. That's all we want to do. There's no reason for us to be there if, that's not, if, they, if we don't do that. And he was kind of like mad at me, and we were like having this tense conversation on the phone at this point. He's like, all right, whatever, all right, Tim, okay, Tim, and then click. And, um, and then uh, Shane over here, our executive pastor, he came up with this, this idea. We got it from another church. Like I said, we steal all our ideas from everybody else, so take it. Um, a gas buy-down program. Y'all did this? Anybody ever do this? You, you pay the gas station a certain amount of money, and they get the gas for 99 cents and all that stuff. So we did it for Woonsocket, not for the other location, but for Woonsocket. And the line's down the street, like, each way. And I go, and I show up early in the morning, and I'm watching. This is, like, last Saturday. And, you know, you can just tell by the cars. These people need this stuff. Like, you can tell. And they're just so happy, and there's tears in their eyes, and, people, and our team is going up and just you know, introducing themselves and telling them about the church launch and all that stuff. And, and then we saw, like, Facebook just blew up of all these people saying, hey, for all you haters who didn't want Waters Church to come to your city, look what they're doing. Come on, that's the best advertising you can get. And now we've told that city through our actions, we love people. It's not just about Waters Church. It's about reaching people far from God and being willing to put your money into gasoline for the sake of people knowing Jesus. And, and, and again, God will take care of that. If you make the lost your number one priority, God will take care of the cost for that priority. Make the lost the priority, God will cover the cost. One of the things that changed my life about money was a book I read by Tony Shea. Anybody know who Tony Shea is? He's the founder of Zappos.com. Zappos.com was sold to Amazon about four years ago for $1.6 billion. Now, Tony Shea was a friend of my cousin's. My cousin moved out to California to work for Tony Shea when he was with a company called Link Exchange. He sold Link Exchange for $241 million in like 1999 uh, to Microsoft. And he had $241 million in his bank account. So he became a venture capitalist. And, he, and I read this, this is all in his book. Um, it's called Delivering Happiness. It's a great book, by the way. Not a Christian, but I think we can learn from all people. And so he, um, he's, he uh, is invested in all these small little companies, and, uh, and then he found one that he just fell in love with, and it was Zappos. And Zappos was struggling. They had, like, hardly any inventory. They had hardly any customers. But the whole idea of selling shoes online, he was like, this is what I'm made to do. <laughs> and so he eliminated all his other venture capitalists, uh, ventures or whatever you want to call them, he, he, he bought out or he got his position bought out and he sold out for this one little online shoe retailer. 
but it was doing nothing. It was losing money left, right, and center. And he tells in the book that he got to this point where uh, they needed like $180 million of capital to buy a factory and tons of inventory so they could change their delivery process and get people's shoes in their hands faster. And he says in the book, he said, I made a decision. And he had $180 million sitting in his bank from the sale of his first company, Link Exchange. I made a decision that I was going to sell out for shoes. And he took his $180 million that was sitting in his bank account, and he bought all that stuff for a company that was not making any money. And I read that part of the chapter, and I was like, and the Lord just kind of spoke to me, and he said, he's willing to risk all that he has to put shoes on people's feet. And not, not orphans in Africa. <laughs> like, like high-end people's feet. Like if you've shopped Zappos, you know it's not the cheapest online shoe retailer. And, I, and the Lord just said to me, are you willing to put all your money on the table for lost people? And I shared that with my staff. And I said, look, we're going all in. I held up the book. I said, he went, in all for, he went all in for shoes. We are going all in for people far from God. Either love it or find some per, somewhere else to work. And so a week later, my secretary who had been there for five years was one of those 45 people that walked out the door one weekend, handed me a resignation letter, tears in her eyes. I'm like, hey, I'll see you next Sunday. She's like, okay, okay. Never saw her again. <laughs> she left the church. She left with about 45 other people. Uh, it is what it is. When you start reaching the lost, the people who are on the inside start criticizing you. They criticize Jesus. They're going to criticize you. Get used to it. Keep going after the lost sheep, no matter what it takes. And so um, you got to put your money there. you got to put your money into reaching lost people. you got to make sure that you're willing to empty your bank accounts for lost people. We've emptied our bank account. We are at zero balance, I think. <laughs> yeah, there's our executive pastor. We are at zero balance in our bank account right now. You know, and this is like we've been here how many times? Like, yeah, <laughs> several times. And, and the funny thing is, we were talking about this the other day. Like, like two years ago before we purchased this building and moved in, I remember we were looking at our numbers and we were at a, we were at a plus $52,000 a month balance. Every month we were making $52,000. It was awesome. We were like, what do we want to upgrade today? Hey, let's buy it. No problem, whatever. And now we're like, we're broke. We have nothing. <laughs> Where's the money going to come from? And everything like that. And you got to do all those, you know, all those things that I learned for four years of raising money. I'm doing them again. But you gotta be, you got to be all in. Break the financial, emotional tie for the lost people. Do whatever it takes. Buy, uh, buy radio spots. Buy newspaper spots. Buy uh, Facebook advertising. Go where the people are and put your advertising where the people are going. We started an online podcast. We put it on Facebook Live at 12 noon every Wednesday. It's just me doing a Bible study at 12 noon on Wednesday, talking about the church, trying to get people to come to our events. And, and then we, we add, we add um, uh, what do you call that? We, um, what do you call that on Facebook? Boost it. We boost it. It costs like $45 to boost the post. $45. It goes to like, like 7,000 people. 7,000 people for $45. Like you got to understand the market too. Where are the people going? They're no longer reading the paper. They're no longer going to like, on, you know, they're not going to your website. They're going to your Instagram. They're going to your Twitter feed. They're going to your Facebook feed. That's where people are going. Go where the people are and put your money there to tell the people going there what you have is better than whatever they're trying to buy to fill the void of their lives. Because we believe that, right? 
Like Jesus is better than alcohol and Jesus is better than all the other things people want to chase after. So you've got to break that emotional tie and, and put your money into lost people. And the third emotional attachment, lastly, is, and this is going to sound weird, but it's true, our own pride. Our own pride. Um, the last story is the story of the prodigal son. It's really important to realize that when, I, I, don't, I, know, I don't need to read the story. You all know the story, right? But at the end of the story, when the son is on his way back to the father, what does it say? It says the father saw him a long way off. And what does the father do? He runs to him. He runs to the son. He puts his robe around him, puts his ring on his finger, and then he calls his servants, rallies them, and says, let's celebrate again. Remember, what do you rally about? What do you rally your team around? But if you know anything about that, that context of that story, the Middle Eastern first century context of that story, it's really amazing. Uh, first off, the father ditched all his sense of pride, all his dignity, because in those days, grown men did not run. They ran nowhere. It was actually unfit for a grown man to run in public because they would have to hitch up their robe and expose their legs, and people would see their hairy legs, and say they'd run across the street, and there he is running. And so he lost all pride in himself to go after his lost son. And then it says that he wraps him in his robe, and he puts the ring on his finger and, and, uh, and, and tells them to throw the party. And there's a deeper contextual insight into that moment that's, that's incredible. Um, uh, Kenneth Bailey, who is a great scholar of the first century um, times, says that there was a ceremony in Jewish days, in, 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 the, in the ancient world, in, in the Jewish life, uh, community life, where if a son left the family and spent his father's inheritance on Gentiles and tried to come back, they would bring him into the community. They would take a pot, it was called the Kazaza ceremony, they would take a clay pot they would smash it on the ground in front of everybody and say, that's what you've done to your father's reputation. You're dead to us. And they would cast him out of the community. The father runs, losing his pride, intercepts, yeah, intercepts his son and, and wraps him in the robe to spare him the humiliation of that ceremony. And I think about this. This is the last thought I want to leave you with. It is so easy once your church starts to take off once your church starts to get big, that you unintentionally create a community that makes it hard for people to come back to God. It makes it embarrassing for them to come back to God. And this father did everything necessary against his own dignity and against his own notoriety to make sure that son came home. How much more so do we have to lose what we consider this is what makes us us? This is my, this is my identity. This is what I love about being me. And if what you love about who you are as a church does not reach people far from God, stop loving it. Break the emotional attachment. Get yourself out there. Be willing to embarrass yourself for the sake of people far from God. There's a guy on my staff who is, has been on my staff for six years. He's our lighting coordinator. His first Sunday was the Sunday that I announced to the church that we were going to go after the loss. And what I did to tell the church we were going to go after the loss was I had them rig up this rope swing um, up to the ceiling of our church, and I brought in a Lazy Boy recliner, and I, I preached this message about reaching loss and being willing to get uncomfortable for the loss, and I said, you got to just jump out of your laziness. And so I took the rope swing, and I went up onto the recliner, and I stood on the recliner, 
And I jumped onto the rope swing and <laughs> swung out over the crowd on this rope swing from the recliner to send this message. We are going to do whatever it takes to reach people far from God. And that was like a humiliating moment for me. I'm not like that like normally, but it sent a message. And that kid that's on my staff today, he's a fantastic kid. He said, that was my first Sunday. And he said, the moment that I knew you were willing to do that to tell me about Jesus, this was my church. And he's still with us today. Be willing to break your emotional attachments for God's first love. His first love is people. Thanks, guys.